Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. You know, I have been a Christian for 28 years, coming up on 28 years this fall. When as a college student, a first-year college student, someone took the time and how thankful I am to share Jesus Christ with a guy who did not grow up in a Christian home and knew nothing much about God at all, and yet he took the time to reach out to me and to bring Christ to me. And over the last 28 years, there have been wonderful experiences with Jesus Christ. There have been wonderful opportunities to see Him work. There have been great things among the church body to see God work through you and others. But this morning, because of James and the subject he wants to address, I want to share with you first off what I believe is to be the most painful experience I've had as a Christian over these last 28 years. And that is of losing a Christian friend over a difference of opinion or a difference of direction are a difference in priorities. And though they were differences at that level, somehow between us they became right and wrong issues. And as a result, there was a division between us. I've never been more hurt than to have those kind of experiences. Psalm 133.1 says, How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And yet how heartbreaking it is for Christian friends to separate, especially around matters that are not matters of right and wrong, but just matters of preferences. Unity is such a wonderful, marvelous experience. And yet oftentimes they unravel, not because you did something wrong to a friend or they did something wrong to you, but you did something they didn't expect or they did something you didn't want. And out of that, there becomes this growing division between you that separates you from them and they from you. And rather than rejoicing in their different path or their successes that you maybe secretly are envious of, or the things that they've decided upon that didn't go as you wanted, what happens is, is that as a result, this division causes one to turn on the other. One to withdraw, maybe from you, to say things maybe ugly about you. And there are a few things worse that I've experienced than having someone who is part and parcel with your spiritual life break off that relationship for differences that are not really right and wrong issues. I think King David had that experience. You might turn, we're going to look in James in just a moment, but you might turn to Psalm 55. Because David, I think, expresses that, that hurt well in this psalm. It's a psalm where he talks about what he has experienced with brothers in the faith. And notice how he expresses that when you come to verse 12. He says, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, because if it was, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, because then I could hide myself from him. 
but it is you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together. We who walked in the house of God together. Boy, that hurts, doesn't it? There may be some of you here this morning who, even as I speak about those things, some people come to mind who you've been at odds with. And as I talk here this morning, maybe you're at odds with them as you think through it, not because they did wrong, but because they didn't do what you wanted. Notice Acts 15. Turn there with me for just a moment. Because this happens in even the best of people. And when you turn to Acts 15, what you're turning to is Paul's second missionary journey. Now, Paul was a great visionary. He had a desire to go back and re-encourage the churches that he had planted on his first missionary journey. And he had done that with a faithful friend by the name of Barnabas. But when you turn to Acts chapter 15, verse 36, you see this unnecessary hurt occur. Look at verse 36. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Man, he's got this clear vision. He knows exactly what he wants to do, and he wants Barnabas to join along with him. It says in verse 37, though, And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with him. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. And notice verse 39. And there arose such a sharp disagreement. The word means irritation. They were so irritated with one another, this apostle and his first lieutenant, that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. That ever happened to you? Boy, that hurts. And what is the problem here? Is Paul the problem, the visionary, and not wanting to take this deserter along with them? Or is Barnabas the problem and not wanting to leave John Mark behind? Or may I suggest to you that maybe the problem is that both are wrong and not seeing and encouraging the fact that both are right? Is everything in your life a right and wrong issue? Is every time somebody takes a different way, chooses to go a different way than you, whether it's in your family or your friends, they decide to move in a different neighborhood when you thought we were going to live together, or they decided to go to public school when you had agreed to go to private school, or they decided something different and you take that as a right and wrong issue and a betrayal to the loyalty of your friendship and a split occurs? Those are such hurtful things. Now we can go on in this particular passage of separation and follow what actually worked out in these guys' lives. Because Paul went on a second missionary journey and it turned out to be a very successful journey and God blessed it mightily. But we also know that Barnabas and staying behind with this fledgling believer who had had a humongous fall in his desertion from the work, by spending time with him, John Mark ultimately recovered and recovered well. I mean, he wrote the Gospel of Mark. And not only did he write the Gospel of Mark, but later on, towards the end of Paul's career, when he was in prison, 
alone in Rome, of all people, who came to be with him as his companion? John Mark. It's interesting, isn't it? But yet at this moment here in Acts 15, both men missed the special work of God. Instead, both men are left wounded and disappointed in one another. And what ends up at the end of Acts chapter 15 is an unnecessary, broken Christian friendship. Now I want you to turn to James chapter 4. Because James begins with, I think, a very important question. One that I think would interest us all because I think we all suffer from relationships of why, why didn't we get along? Why didn't we work this thing out? Why are we such at odds with one another? And there are times, by the way, where we're talking about odds where they are clear differences in right or wrong, and that's one subject, but we're not talking about those clear disagreements. We're talking about the gray areas. And James says this in verse 1, What is the source of these unnecessary quarrels and conflicts among you? It's a good question, isn't it? Where do they come from? What's the place? And he says in verse 1, is, it not, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You know what it is that makes Christian friends quarrel on unnecessary matters rather than appreciating and supporting and cheering for one another and being glad for the choice you made? He says it's your pleasures. Another translation would be, he says it's your desires. Now, I want you to know something because that's an important word. We need to camp here for a moment. The word your pleasures or your desires is not an evil word. It's not, not like you're wanting something wrong for the other person. In fact, it's a word that was used in the New Testament and around the New Testament as a desire for something good for somebody or for yourself. It's a desire for a good thing. It's a desire for a good marriage. It's a desire to have your friends work with you in things or to have your child turn out right. It's all these good desires that you have. But James says those many times are the very source of your conflicts. These good desires, these good agendas that you have for you and your friends. That's interesting, isn't it? So what's the problem? Well, the problem is, is when those good desires that you have in mind become God's agenda for everybody else. You hear that? Because see, it wasn't a problem for Paul necessarily to have the desire for Barnabas to come along with him alone without this guy who was dragging his feet, John Mark. Because Paul's a visionary. He's a man who's going to make it happen. He doesn't need to stay around and tend to the wounded. He's out there making new churches. And he wanted somebody who could encourage him in that. And there was nothing wrong with that. That was a good desire. It only became wrong when Paul made it a right and wrong issue between he and Barnabas. See that? When, wait a minute, Barnabas, if you stay behind, you're not doing God's will. You've broken with loyalty to the real cause, which I embody. My desire for my son to stay in the family business is a good desire. But it, comes a bit, but it becomes a problem when I make it God's will for him that he stay in the family business. And if he doesn't stay in the family business, he's broken with God and he's done the wrong thing. 
And I make him know that. And that becomes a division between us and an unnecessary hurt in a family relationship. My desire for the church to do this or that good thing. Maybe I came from another church and we used to do this particular thing at that church and it always worked out good, but I came here and you're not doing that here. So I've talked to some of you about it. And you listen to me and you've considered that and then you decided not to do it and you're wrong. You're doing the wrong thing. It's going to mess up this church. Don't you hear me? And so now you can't be comfortable here anymore because though you like everything else, we're not doing this thing. And you're right. And they're wrong. And it creates an unnecessary breach in the relationship that could have been there. My desire for my marriage to have this or that. And I begin to press this or that on my spouse and make it an issue of right and wrong and a war breaks out. That's what he's saying. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You see, none of these desires that I've mentioned are wrong. What's wrong is that how we apply them. When we make them test of friendship, test of loyalty, when they don't become just opportunities or options, but they come from us, however we say it, however we mean to apply it, they come from us as orders. And if you don't obey, then we're going to have problems in our relationship. You know, I found even in talking to people after the first service, how many of us around us suffer from these broken relationships and we don't know what to do about them. Because in our minds, we really do believe that if these people ever really grow up, they'll agree with us. See, if they ever really come to terms with what life's all about, they'll finally say, you know, Robert, you were right. But because they don't do that, there's always this nasty tension. And what used to be how pleasant and beautiful the unity is now a tight, you know, relationship that we just kind of get along, but we grit our teeth in it. God never intended that. That's wrong. You know, in the next four verses, verses two through five, James describes the kind of believer that I think goes through life and has a lot of fights. Life is a fight. Life is a fight trying to get people to do what you want. Life is a fight of comparing and competing and controlling other people trying to get them to do what you want so you'll feel good about yourself or trying to get your way because if you think you don't get your way, you won't be happy. So you've got to force others to do and even force God to do your agenda. And I call that person the self-centered Christian. They don't know that, but they're the self-centered Christian. And everything in life is seen from a win-lose perspective. You that way? If you don't get your way, you lose. If you get your way, you win. But left out of all of that equation is God. The God who is trying to direct. The God who's trying to lead. The God who has different destinies for different people. And though you may walk side by side with a friend for years through life, there may come a time where they are really being led to choose this direction. And they need your support. But you see that as betrayal. You lose, they win. The God who's calling different people to different lives. And yet in each of those individual lives, 
He is promising those people that he's not going to withhold anything good from them. He wants to bless them. And you know, one of the things about a church that's so wonderful is when you have all this diversity that works together in harmony and people are cheering for one another in the gray areas rather than criticizing because we don't all look just like the same. All from the same cookie cutter so I can feel good about myself. You see, that's not faith. That's fear. And we need to be people of faith. That's what James is talking about here. You know, it's interesting in the Gospel of John as it concludes in chapter 21, Peter exhibits this fear and this jealousy and this envy. He's been confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected body and told by Jesus Christ that he has a plan for him. He says, you're going to go to places you've never intended to go. You're going to do things that you haven't even thought about. And you're going to die a death that you can't even imagine. And as Peter considered that, you know the first thought that came to his mind? Because you can see it in John 21. You can turn there later. It's not that, wow, you have a life for me. No, you know what he does? He turns and he looks at the apostle John and goes, well, now wait a minute, Lord, what are you going to do with this guy? What about this man? Are you going to give him something better than me? You're sending me to do all this stuff. Is he going to be comfortable and I'm going to be the one that's going to get shipped out? What about him? And you know what Jesus says to him? What does that matter to you? You follow me. And hidden in that, embedded in that text is, don't you believe I have the good life for you? Why do you need to compare it with him? But see, fear says, I've got to compare it. I've got to always compare to feel good about myself. I've always got to compete. I've got to create my own agendas and go for it because if I don't go for it, I may not get it. That's what's being addressed in this text. And the person who lives like that, that win-lose Christian, the self-centered Christian, believe it or not, exhibits some ugly characteristics behind the shell. And James enumerates those for us in verses 2 through 5. Look what he says there. He says, first of all, he says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. He says, one of the things, now it doesn't show on the surface, but one of the things of the self-centered Christian is his life is characterized by lust and envy. Notice the good pleasure that we saw in verse 1 has now turned in verse 2 to lust and envy. And when good pleasure turns to lust and envy, those things in turn do bad things to good people. They hurt them. The word James uses is they murder them. They cannot obtain, so what do they do? They fight. They create quarrels and factions because they think they need those things and they deserve those things and they're going to go get those things. I call these, this verse crimes of passion here. And we see that all the time. And we have two trials in front of us, the O.J. Simpson trial and the Susan Smith trial. Those are crimes of passion where people wanted something so bad and in O.J.'s case, maybe it was a good marriage. And in Susan Smith's case, it might have been to have a companion now that she was a single parent. Those are good things. But they wanted them so bad and they thought they wouldn't get them and they didn't have anybody they could trust. Then they had to go out and take them. And take them at whatever expense it took to get what I think I deserve. Did you know that same insidious 
enemy is embedded in your heart. And it'll get control of you if you're not careful. And it will lead you to do crimes of passion, maybe not murder, hopefully not, but it may lead you to do other things to the people you love around you, like talk bad about them, assassinate their character. It's to spread gossip in order to kind of bring them down a little bit because you think they're getting ahead. To lie or cheat or steal or to do whatever you need to do in order to get what you want or to commit adultery or immorality or even to go so far as to hurt someone. See, we do that because we think no one's really watching out for us. And a self-centered Christian has only one perspective, and that's what he's experienced at the moment and whether he's getting what he wants out of life. He's so busy trying to take life that he has no time to pray. And that leads us to the second characteristic, prayerlessness and carelessness in regards to prayer. That's a mark of the self-centered Christian. You might ask yourself, you know, am I, am I walled off from people? Are things not going right? And the question is, have you even brought those to God yet? See, that's what he asked. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And why aren't you asking? Well, we have to, have to speculate at the answer, but it's something like this, I think, because deep within, we don't really believe that the life that God has for us will really satisfy us. So why pray? The best thing to do is go out and take. So we spend our time being busy taking and comparing and keeping score and competing. We're too busy trying to take control of our life and other people's lives so we can get what we want than to ask God for it because we're afraid He won't give it. There's fear there. It's not faith. And then if we're desperate enough, notice verse 3, we might ask, but then we don't receive because the reality is, is that we ask wrongly to spend it on our motives. You know, I can remember in high school, this is before I became a Christian, sitting in the tunnel before we ran out on the field on Friday night, begging God to let us win. Have you done that? And, and I've listened to those kind of prayers over the years from young believers, and they're chock full of, make me successful. But you know you get a, you're getting around a more experienced Christian, a more seasoned Christian, a more mature Christian, when their prayers take on a whole nother language. And so, God, what can we do to advance your kingdom? What can we do to seize this opportunity for your glory? What is your will? Because even if I get that promotion, I'm not wanting to take it if in some way it would keep me from doing the things you really want me to do. Oh, I really, I really love this girl, but I'm going to take her if in fact she's the wrong person for me. See, that's a seasoned Christian speaking there. But the one who's only concerned for their life and whose agenda is already made out is the one who's demanding of God that he fit that agenda. And you know what happens if he doesn't? They get alienated from God. And there becomes this unnecessary fight because deep within, there's this big question mark and it's a haunting question mark. And if you don't get it resolved, it'll haunt you your whole life. And that question mark is, is God really the giver of life? Is he really at the end? If I really trusted him, at the end of my life, would I look back and go, 
that was good? Or do I still carry the question mark that, you know, I'm not sure I can trust him because I might miss out. That's why a second characteristic is this prayerlessness. Reminds me of the story of the man who's up on the roof, you know, and he's fixing his antenna and he falls off, he slides down the roof and he only grabs on with one hand the gutter. And he's just dangling there 40 feet above the ground. And in his desperation, he calls out to God. He says, is anybody up there that can hear me? And as the story goes, a voice says, I'm here. He says, what do I do? And the voice says, let go. Then he says, is there anybody else up there that can hear me? <laughs> and you know, that's humorous, but you know what's embedded in that little story? I don't trust you. It's just like one young lady said to me after the service. She said, I have hurt so many people in my office. And I said, what are you going to do? She said, I don't know. I said, maybe you ought to go ask forgiveness. I don't know if I can do that. See, can you believe God enough that he's going to give life? That's, that's the problem here. Look, there's a third area because if you don't trust God, you turn to the world. And in that, you compromise. You try to have both the faith and the world. And he calls it an adulteress, this, do, this doing this. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So he tries to have two lovers, God and the world. And he's going to play his agenda off of both. Hopefully in time, he's going to find life. But you know, when you try to do both, play God and play the world, my experience watching Christians who do that is that life becomes even harder, becomes even messier, becomes even more complex. And I think I know why, because it's right there in verse 40. You see the last line? You make yourself an enemy of God. See, you didn't believe that God was going to give you life. You didn't think he was going to do anything for you. So you're, you're kind of going and playing the world. But as you, a Christian, his son, his daughter, play the world, you start finding that that's not working. And you think, well, maybe it's not working because I'm not trying hard enough. Or maybe if I just redouble my efforts. But you know what you're really finding that you're oblivious to? Is that God is opposing you. Do you think he's just going to let you walk away from that relationship? See, look at verse 5. He says, Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? That is, he jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us, to control us, is really what he's saying. In fact, a better translation would be, the Spirit he has made to dwell in us jealously desires us. God desires you. He desires to control you. He desires to lead you. Where? To life. That's where. And when you commit spiritual adultery by going and seeking other sources to fulfill what he's already prepared to give you, he doesn't just stand passively by. No more than a husband would stand passively by while his wife sought out another man. He's going to actively oppose all of that. And it's going to make life even harder. Now I say that because there are probably some of you who are in the audience today, who are at a place where you're right here. And your, your life just is getting more complex and harder. And you think there's no way out. Yes, there is. There's always a way out. That's why verse 6 says, He gives a greater grace. You may find yourself totally tied up in knots, 
The solution is not to work harder, not to take greater control, not to draw more people into your orbit. What follows is what you need to do because there's a better way. And I call it the God-centered way. Notice he says in verse 7, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, there comes a place where a man and woman has to come to this, I call it a special place, where life or finding life is no longer a fight. It's no longer I've got to go out there and grasp it. But in faith, life becomes a given. I've got a heavenly father. I've got a God who is alive, a God who's active in my life, a God who has promised me this abundant life, and he's there for me, and he wants to grant that to me, and all I have to do is receive it. I'm not talking about total passivity. There are plenty of commands that tell us to do things, but I'm talking about when you are not getting your needs met. It may be not because God doesn't want to grant those, but because you're too busy competing with others on agendas that aren't even yours. Notice he says submission. And you know what submission really is? See, submission is different from obedience. There are a lot of people who maybe are here today out of duty. <laughs> so in a sense, it looks like you obeyed the Lord because you're keeping the Sabbath and you're here at a worship service. But submission occurs before obedience. You can obey and not submit. It's like the little kid, you know, who was forced to sit down. He says, I'm sitting down, but I'm standing up on the inside. See, submission could be translated this way. Submission is an attitude of trust. It's where you really believe this is going to work. And you submit, not because you have to, because you really believe it's the best way to live. And out of that then comes obedience. He says, so that's the way to start, is first to submit. And if you really believe that God is the life giver, then you come to verse 8. Draw near to God. I want to stay close to Him. And I don't want anything compromising that relationship. So I'm going to clean up my life. That's what it means by cleaning your hands, you sinners. I'm going to purify my heart. I'm going to, I'm going to get those things that have kept me from this relationship with God, I'm going to get them out of my life. As you do that, you know what starts happening? You start experiencing some of the life that God has for you. And as you experience that life, and you see that the things you've always wanted have always been there without the fight, you begin to grieve. At least I do. That's the next verse. Notice it says, be miserable and mourn. It's, it's not asking you to try to go through some fake tears. What he's really expressing is when a person finally comes to Christ and says, I really do believe you're the life giver. And I clean up my life and I begin to draw near to him to draw off that life. And I begin to see that that works. Then you know what I do? I look back on all the other things I've done where I tried to make it work. I tried to force it. Where I got embittered against somebody because they didn't do what I said. And I created all this havoc for myself by trying to seize life and yet I destroyed it. I began to weep over that. I began to weep over the son that I tried to force in the family business and now we don't have a relationship. I began to weep over my mate who I forced, tried to force to come to this church and now they're hardened against ever coming to this church because I said it was the right thing. I began to weep over that friend who made a choice to do something that I thought was wrong 
but had every evidence as just being an option. But I made it such a big issue that we don't talk anymore. I began to cry over that. It's good to do that. It's good to weep as you experience that life. Which then leads us to verse 10 because then we get to do the last thing. I call it expectant humility. Then we humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. Believing He can rebuild all that. That He can make it work. That we don't have to force it. That we just have to believe it and receive it. Let me give you just an illustration. This is just a practical illustration of my own life that occurred a number of years ago. It was about six years ago and I was in the process of trying to put together the book that ultimately came out called Rocking the Rolls. And uh, uh, I'd mentioned to the elders I'd like to do that. And they said, why don't you take Wednesday morning and work on that? And so I began to do that. But there were so many things at that time going in the, on in the church that I would just simply, with all my materials there, I'd sit there and I'd just write out a few lines, but it just wouldn't come. And so there was a temptation at that point to take even more time, Saturdays, evenings with my family, and work on this book to force it into publication. But you know, there comes a place where there's this sense that this just didn't right. Now, I thought the project was right. I felt the peace about that, but the, it just didn't feel right. And so I could either force it or just think that maybe God had a better way. And I remember talking to the guys and I just said, you know, if it's going to happen, it's going to have to happen in some other way. I can't, it's, this is just not right. I'm taking too much time with it. It's not worth it. So I set it aside. That's called humbling yourself. That's something you want, but it's not worth the price of forcing and controlling and pushing to a place that you know is not right. So I backed off. About a year later, a young man by the name of William Hendricks came through and he was doing an interview on churches around the country and he wanted to do an interview with our church and so Bill Wellens and I went out to lunch with him and we spent some time talking about the church and at the end of the interview, Bill mentioned to him, he said, Bill, what else do you do? You know, uh, you're doing this interview, but what, what, what do you do broadly for a vo vocation? And Bill said, he said, well, what I like to do is come alongside guys who don't have the time to publish a book and help them put it into print. And Bill said, well, I got the guy for you sitting right here. <laughs> and Bill gave him some materials and I didn't, I mean, I didn't even, I didn't even press that. I thought if the Lord wants that to happen, it'll happen. And about a month later, Bill called back and said, hey, I want to help you get that out. Now, do you see the difference in the two paths there? Now, that's, that probably is an illustration that doesn't directly relate to you, but I want to see, show you the difference between forcing things and receiving things. And often in life, God has a time set aside, but you need to wait for Him to do that and let Him grant that life rather than prematurely focusing on that and forcing that or competing with others to get there and doing damage. At the bottom of your outline, there's these two kind of summaries of life. And I'd call them this way. There's the Christian who tries to seize life and who ends up destroying it. And then there's the Christian who receives life and ends up enjoying it. Where are you? Where are you? Whatever your circumstance, wherever you find yourself right now, do you believe that God is good? And do you believe with all the creeds we recite and all the scripture we possess, do you believe that God, if you were humble, 
will withhold good things from you? Or do you believe in the proper time that He will give those things to you? And He will lead you in whatever pilgrimage you're in to a place that you could look back on your life and say, there are no regrets. This is why we take communion this morning. We take communion because we believe that God is good. Let's pray together. And Lord, we take communion as well because it shows how much you really desire us and love us. What great love to see us in the condition we're in, some of us this morning, where we've maybe made a trivial thing with a friend into a big thing and now we're alienated. We're grieving here this morning. We need to make that right, but that's a scary thing. The question is, can you bring life out of that? Can you bring life out of the relationships around us? Can we trust you for life? James says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.